Westmount, let's continue our worship in the Word. Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. As you're turning there, especially if you're a regular attender at Westmount, you're probably wondering why we're turning there. Well, I can assure you that I, with you, am very anxious to return to the book of Romans. And we will do that soon. Listen, Romans 6 awaits, and all the gold to unearth it awaits us. However, there are other passages of Scripture that call for our attention right now. Yes, other portions of God's Word that not only require special consideration today, but other portions that require some lingering confusion to be cleared. Our intention has been to do a series this summer addressing such Bible confusion. That's been the plan this summer, to do misunderstood passages and such. We're going to look at such topics as membership and marriage and church governance, just to name a few. That is still the plan, God willing, this summer, and we aim to do that. However, as the elders have been meeting and processing these past few months, it became very clear to us that a couple of these themes need more immediate attention right now. So we're going to pause Romans for two weeks to address the first of two of them. And of course, the first one, as you can see, is discipleship, specifically church discipleship, as we would call it that more formally, church discipleship. Discipleship, of course, was the final command from Christ to his disciples just before he ascended to heaven post-resurrection. Remember, of course, Jesus said what? Go and what? Make disciples, Matthew 28. Disciple in the original language is mathetes, which literally means a learner or a pupil. That's what that word means. That's what it means simply to be a disciple. It's one who learns. Now listen, learning, of course, occurs in a variety of ways. Is that not true? We can learn in many different ways. And as we're aiming to be simple and clear this morning, let's boil learning down to its main manner. Let's do this. And it is this. No matter where you are at in the spectrum, it's effort, it's sweat. And sweat at times, listen, is sweet. For some, for many, I hope, looking at the pile of books and the study, right? Reading the manuals, getting into it. You love that, and it's a sweet discipline. It's a sweet study. However, the sweat at times is painful, right? It hurts. It smarts. Listen, correction always does. However, it may hurt, but I think we'd all agree, when you're a disciple, it is a necessary hurt, right? It's an important hurt. I remember years ago hearing the testimony of an Olympic diver, and he was exceptional in his class at the time, and he was asked all the time, how do you do that? How do you keep your body so straight, and there's barely a ripple in the water? And he said, you're seeing one dive. What you haven't seen is a thousand corrective dives. Why I slap my stomach, slap my back, hurt myself. That's what you don't see. And because of those corrective dives is the one dive you just saw that got a 10 today. 
And so discipline hurts at times, and it must. Discipline, indeed, is both pleasant and painful. Learning involves both. As such, avoiding the pain impairs the discipleship process. Listen, Westmount. Avoiding the pain kills the learning. And here's the rub. We do not like pain, do we? We just don't like it. So we would actually rather avoid it. Which would be one thing if you're learning to be an Olympic diver, but it's quite another thing if you're learning to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And to be a disciple, to be a learner, to be a pupil of Christ also involves both. Learning as a disciple is pleasant, isn't it? I pray you feel that. Learning, understanding the word, taking in the gold, that's sweet, isn't it? Those new aha moments, yes, I see it now, pleasant. But learning as a disciple is also painful. The need for correction, the need to be told. And listen, Westmount, this is not stuff from a conservative church or serious church on sin. That's not what this is. This is truth directly from God's word. I want us to listen as we open this morning to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, Gary's already taken us to to Hebrews. Just listen to this. Hebrews 12, talking about discipline. I'm going to read 3 to 10. Consider him, this is Christ from verses 1 to 2, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Listen. In your struggle against sin... You have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he what? Loves. And chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which you've all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness." So much there, but look again, God disciplines us for our good. Why? Why does he discipline us for our good? That we may share his holiness. This is sanctification. And I know we desire that, don't we? I know maybe you prayed it this morning, God, make me holy. Yet it's the becoming that we don't like. Is that not true? We just don't like that. We don't like the process. Like the one wanting to dive, and you say to him, okay, it's going to take thousands upon thousands of dives. Your stomach will hurt, your back will hurt, and it's going to take time. You're like, well, you know what? I'd rather not. I'd rather not. So as Christians, not divers, we recognize that we may be avoiding something that we really need. Now that said, a couple final opening comments are needed here. The church discipleship process And of course, as you can see, we're zeroing in on the painful part, known as discipline, is one of those misunderstood teachings of God's word. This is famously, regularly misunderstood over and over again, hence why we need to to go there in this series. For one, churches just do not engage in discipline. Learning, right? 
the discipline of learning the word, the pleasantness is one thing. And actually, we could do another message just on the fact that churches aren't doing that, right? Getting to the word, teaching the word, the discipline in the word. That's one thing that's not happening. But listen, if it's true for the pleasant, if we in church proper aren't even disciplining in the pleasant, you can imagine what we're doing with the pain, right? I just referenced one recent survey of 439 church leaders revealed a full, listen to this, 50% of church leaders admitted they never, capital N, became involved with church members engaged in unrepentant sin. Never. Never. Beloved, that's church leaders. Listen, if those that are charged to engage and tend the sheep and protect them, if they're not engaging, what about the rest of the church? By the way, as you know, evidence would confirm this, wouldn't it? As you wonder what is going on in the church. By the way, when asked why, they cited three reasons. Listen to this, and I think will resonate with all of them. Number one, they feared the outcome. That's why they avoided it. They feared the outcome. Number two, they, they just didn't want conflict. Anyone there that just doesn't like conflict, doesn't want uncomfortable situations, they said that was the second reason. And the third, the ignorance of how. They were just completely ignorant of how you deal with sin, unrepentant sin. So secondly, when the subject arises and people suggest a process from Matthew 18, do you know this, the protest is what? No, no, I don't want Matthew 18, I want Matthew 7. And what's the cry, the famous cry from Matthew 7? Judge not. I'm quite convinced Hobby Lobby must have something on judge not in their store somewhere that we can put in our homes. Judge not, judge not, judge not. Church discipline, who am I? Who are you to judge? You've heard that. I know you've heard it. And you've heard it over and over again. Who am I to judge? But listen, therein lies the problem, beloved. Please track with the word of God. If you do that and say, I prefer Matthew 7 and I don't prefer Matthew 18... You're just simply choosing a more convenient verse, but it's even not that. Most often, Matthew 7 and Judge Not is not the more convenient. It's simply being read wrong. So you're not cherry-picking a more convenient verse. Jesus, of course, there is not teaching never to judge. He's teaching what? How you must do so. That's the point. This is how you're to discern. Let's hear him directly. I remind you, Matthew 7, verse 5. First, when you're going to discern and love and protect your brother, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to do what? To take the speck out of your brother's eye. There it is from Jesus. Later, by the way, <clears throat> Paul will confirm this. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 12 to 13. If you think that's something, listen to Paul later on. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you're to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. That's from the word of God. And it's a call in both places, Jesus and Paul, for loving, helpful discernment toward other disciples. And listen, it's commanded. Do you see that? It's a command. Beloved, as such, the problem is not that the church is too critical. That's not the problem. Oh, those critical people in the church. In fact, that's not the problem at all. You know what the real problem is? The church is not critical at all. Nothing is dealt with. Everything is tolerated under the banner of judge not. 
Listen, I know you and I hear regularly what all the time? What do we hear? I don't understand how a church got to that place. I don't understand how they're endorsing this. I don't understand how they're tolerating that. Well, I think maybe we begin to know why. But see it and hear it from Christ and God's word. We are called to discipleship, which is discernment, which is learning. And it means we learn both pleasantly and painfully. And we need to keep reading in Hebrews, actually. If we were to keep reading on discipline, we'd come to this in verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. And we all would say amen to that, right? But later it yields, listen, the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So good. The path to peaceful fruit is at times through painful seasons. Yes. And Westmount, we know this by direct experience this past year, but let us not be confused. We know what is being done. We know what is being done. But we also need to know why it's being done and how exactly it's prescribed to be done so that there's no more confusion. And that is why we turn to Matthew 18 today for timely, important, critical help for us. All right, one last word on how we're going to tackle this chapter this morning. This, of course, is not a verse-by-verse exposition. We're not in the Gospel of Matthew. Very different purpose. This is an overview. So we're going to be scanning this chapter, and we're really going to be taking time and moments with the practical, with the practice. But we're going to see this, hopefully, the broad canvas that will help us overall. And we're particularly going to zone in on the practice in verses 15 to 20. So let's read those verses to begin. Look with me, Matthew 18, 15 to 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask... It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would help us take these words, take this chapter, Lord, see them, understand them. And Father, let it clear our minds so that we can go and and do as you call us to do, rightly understanding what it means to be a disciple of your Son. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In the chapter, if you were to look at chapter 17, just before what we just read, Jesus is revealed, and you can scan that chapter, his transfigured glory, you know that account. He's affirmed once again his Son of God credentials, right, through a miraculous demonic healing. And notably, and here's the notable part, he signaled again his upcoming death and resurrection, He signaled that again to the disciples, a foretelling, listen, of bearing punishment for the purpose of ultimate peace. See that? See an economy there. Bearing punishment for the purpose of ultimate peace. Note that. Christ embraces the pain for the peace. But that's very different to what the disciples want, isn't it? Let's now open up to Matthew 18 and see the bickering going on with these disciples. Look in verse 1 in our first point, the Threat to discipleship, or we'd say discipleship's threat. Let's read these first four verses. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbled himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The first threat we will see here to discipleship and growing and learning in Christ, look at it, is the fallen belief that we do not need to. Do you see that? That we have already peaked. In other words, this pervasive threat is called pride. Pride threatens discipleship every time, and it has many manifestations. It can go like this. You know, I've been a Christian for a while. I've arrived. You know what? I really know God's word, and I want to help other people learn about it. I really know it. Or how about this? Just simply this. Let's get pedestrian. Just simply the pride that fishes for the compliments, like the disciples are doing right here. Let me ask the question to get the compliment. And that's the pride by the disciples. And Christ's response to it is clear in verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Not the prideful, the humble. Continue in verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. The second threat to discipleship presented here is others. You know it as the stumbling block. As Christ says, the reality of others causing the disciple to sin. So many ways, of course, beloved, this occurs. We need not recount the ways, only the warning. Look at verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, what? It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Continue in verse 8. 7, by the way, woe to the world. Talks about temptations coming necessarily from the world, but not from believers. And then Jesus continues in 8, And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Hard words there. But look at it, the third threat to discipleship, along with pride, along with others, is what? Self. Our eyes, our hands, our feet. This is nothing short of a radical call to discipleship. And it says, cut off sinful enablers. Cut them off. That show, that app, that place, that relationship causing you to sin. Jesus says plainly what? Cut it off. Cut it off. By the way... I want you to look at that verse. The command is not unclear, is it? What we confuse is our like and reception of it. Often we like our eyes, we like our hands, we like our feet, thank you very much, and we'd rather like to hold on to them with the protest that, well, you know what, ease up, I can handle it, when really we can't. Charles Spurgeon, commenting on this command from Christ, said this, I quote, better to miss culture through a rigid Puritanism than to gain all the polish and accomplishments of the culture at the expense of our spiritual health, end quote. Is that not true? Now, before we move too quickly here, we need to point out the obvious, and this is probably what you're thinking. If I was to hear this from anyone else but Jesus, I would say what? Here it is. Wow, Christian, you're really hard on sin, right? If you heard it from anyone else but Jesus, you would say, wow, that's just really, you're tough, you're hard on sin, ease up, where is the grace? You've heard that. 
Well, two things to say in response to that. Number one, look at the text again, those verses. Those are the words out of the mouth of the one who is what? The fullness of grace, isn't he? John 1.14, the fullness of grace gives these words. Two, this is not being hard on sin. Look at what Jesus says. This is actually what? Dealing with sin. Isn't that refreshing? Dealing with sin. This is being direct with sin. And it is absolutely paramount when discipleship is threatened by pride, by others, by self. Westmount, let us not miss this crucial context here. Discipleship's threat. Again, we move on. Secondly, that's the threat. Let's look at the concern, discipleship's concern. Next, Jesus gives us a parable. Let's read it in verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. No need to linger much here. The point of the parable is obvious, isn't it? When the one sheep strays in sin, presumably in sin, and you see that in context, the shepherd doesn't say, well, you know what, that's too bad, at least I have 99. Right? No, the shepherd does what? He goes after them. He goes in search of the one. And beloved, this is the picture of discipleship's concern. Listen, and here's your peace, disciple. Your straying is not forsaken, right? God goes after you when you stray. Praise God. As the shepherd goes after the straying sheep, so too must the church go after straying members. Now, Esma, let's not miss what comes next here in the verses that follow because they'll describe in context precisely what going after looks like. And that would be the so-called church discipline process we see in verses 15 to 20. And this is important because the issue is not that healthy churches don't go after. Healthy churches do go after. That's not the point. The point always in question is the manner of going after that people don't like. When unrepentant sin is confronted, it's called what? Unloving. When announcements are made and relationships must change, it's considered shunning. And when disciples are revealed to be false and excommunicated, you're called a cult. Yet confronting, rebuking sin, telling it to the church and putting out are not only none of those things, but they're actually what? Look at it. The direct prescription of Jesus, the great physician. A prescription that flows out of a concern for the disciple. You know, there's many pictures of this. I could give you many, but let's try to just make this very simple this morning. I want you to think about the father that teaches the young one about playing with fire, playing with matches, hand in the socket. You can go on and on, parents, right? And one day his wife wakes him up because there's smoke coming from Johnny's room, and dad wakes up and recognizes his house or his room of his son is in flames. And what does the loving father do? He tries to get through the door and he can't because the flames have blocked it. So he goes around and he smashes the window. Johnny's still there clinging to his teddy bear. Doesn't want to go. He's scared. The father's got to rip Johnny from the bed, dislocating maybe his shoulder. Throws him through the window, cutting up his arms. Brings him out. Johnny's still crying because his teddy is in there. 
But his son is safe on the lawn, right? To any objective onlooker, what would you say about dad? You brute. You brute. Johnny's hands are all cut up and he doesn't have his teddy. Listen, in the same way how the father goes and gets his son, dislocated shoulder, cut up limbs, stuffed animal left smoldering, In the same way, those are the painful byproducts, listen, of discipleship's concern, a lack of concern. Here it is. It is a lack of concern, beloved, that would leave Johnny in flames. Only unlove would say, my son loves his room. Who am I to take him out of it? Only unlove would say, you know, when he's crying, Johnny's afraid and he just needs space. I'm going to leave him be. Only unlove would say, it's not my place to tell him. Only unlove would say, he'll figure it out on his own and we can go on and on and on. And we think that's absurd, right? Don't we? You're saying to me, Jason, that's absurdity. But we think precisely the same way with sin at times, don't we? The difference is, here's the difference. We don't actually believe they're burning and perishing, do we? We don't actually believe that. It's unbelief. In fact, I might suggest to you it's even more than that. Worse yet, we would rather not get dirt or debris on us because we're too busy, too afraid, or here is one. How are we going to look? What about our reputation? Saints, do we go after those straying? Do we pull them out of the flames? We must, says Jesus. We must. And if so, how do we? Well, we take our prescription, as usual, always from the words of Christ. And that's our next point. Discipleship's restoration. Let's read the prescription. The great physician has pulled out his little pad and written a prescription for the church. Let's read it. It says this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. It's the beginning of it. We're going to walk through this prescription. These verses, which 15 kicks off, are broadly known as the four steps of church discipline. They are that in one sense, but, and that has become such a clinical cold term, hasn't it? Very much white coatish. Now, that is not a reason to abandon the term, as that is what they are. But Westmount, I trust we see now in the context of this chapter that they're even more This is a process that outlines discipleship's restoration. This is not punitive, ultimately. This is restorative in every way. This is bring them back. Go get them, bring them back. So let's take a closer look at these instructions. Again, verse 15, look carefully. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. So much here. Now, the good reader of Matthew's gospel at this point, if you've been reading through the gospel of Matthew and you come to chapter 18 and you hear this instruction in verse 15, you would recognize that before I even begin verse 15 in so-called step one, there's a pre-step, right? Right? There's a pre-step. And what is it? Well, you know exactly what it is. Turn to Matthew 7. This is the pre-step. Don't Engage in any of 15 to 20 unless you deal with Matthew 7. We turn to Matthew 7, Jesus' teaching to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, and now let's read these famous verses. Here's the precept. Judge not, that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye? 
But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Look at that. This, this is a necessary heart preparation for every disciple to do on themselves, not only before they restore a disciple, before they do anything, I would submit to you. This is necessary heart preparation. So what are we saying here as we go back to chapter 18? Before any steps or action, we would say this, have we disciplined ourselves first? Does that make sense? Before I engage in anything with my brother or sister, have I disciplined myself? How is our discipleship, Westmount? Are we in sin? How about our motives? Are they pure? In other words, do we see the need out of a concern of the church or our own personal agenda? Are we discerning with all the facts? Or are we discerning out of opinion and preference? Simply, is our eager judgment really an expression of self-righteousness? Those questions must be asked, not just in Matthew's gospel first, but first in our own hearts, before we even attempt to approach a disciple. Thus, when we do judge ourselves rightly, only then can we discern others rightly. This is the discerning prayer of the psalmist. Listen to Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. That's a prayer. God, help me to know my heart. This is what it means, by the way, with that kind of discernment. That kind of understanding of self. This is what it means to be spiritual. Remember Galatians 6.1, it says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are what? Spiritual, self-discerned, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. See, this is the point. The self-disciplined is the only one, in this sense, qualified to go and help another with their discipleship. And it's the first step or act before we even get to verse 15. Again, so if we've done all that, then we can say, well, if our brother sins against us, we go and tell him his fault between him and him alone. So if there is sin, the one sinned against and the one spiritually self-discerned, listen, is commanded to go and tell his offender his fault directly. Do you see that? That's a command. Note this, Westmount, when we are sinned against, we can't stress this enough, we're commanded to approach our offender. In other words, it is not a noble deed to just let it go or sweep it under the rug. There's no nobility there. It's just plain disobedience, in fact. Also, we should not jump to conclusions. For that vivid reminder, let's jump to Joshua 22. Turn there with me for a moment. We are so prone to jumping to conclusions, aren't we? Here's the question you need to ask yourself. Is what I'm seeing what I'm seeing? Is what I think I'm seeing really it? Are there pieces of information that I'm missing here? This is what Israel went through after the conquest, and they were allotting land and requesting land and such. In Joshua 22, let's pick it up in verse 10. Again, land allotments have been made. We have these eastern tribes which are Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they want to settle on the eastern side of the Jordan River. You know that account. 
Well, they do that, and then look what they want to do. Let's pick it up in 10. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. You can imagine, right? That's just the local... uh, Gossip Express, right? Have you heard what's going on there? Have you seen that altar? And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered to Shiloh to make war against them. They grabbed their stakes. They grabbed their weapons. We're going to go get them. Reuben, Gad, half tried to Manasseh. Have you heard what they're building over there? I know how this goes. Are you with me? Can you believe what they're doing? That's the conclusion jumped to. Well, clearly, clearly they're turning away from Yahweh. They're building another God. Let's go get them. Have you been there? This is what I'm seeing with my eyes. It's a big imposing altar. It can only mean one thing. Well, of course, they approach them, confront them on this. Look at verse 17. You love these emotional pieces. Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor? This is the Baal worship at Peor. Remember, Phineas impales uh, the uh, sinner at Peor. Have we not had enough? Yahweh's angry. Well, what do you say to this Reuben God and half-tribe Manasseh? Verse 21. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer, here's their answer to the heads of the families of Israel. This is their answer to the charge. The mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows and let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today. In other words, impale us. If it is what you're saying, do the thing to us. For building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. In other words, if it's what you're perceiving and you think, then rightly do the deed to us. But listen, no, 24. We did it from fear that in time to come your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and the people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Now, we can go on with the rest of this account. What have they done? They've set up an altar of remembrance to say, lest we never do that. In fact, they've done the exact opposite of what the other tribes thought they would do. And you say, what's all that? What's the point of all that? Here's the point. We do the same thing, don't we? We see our brothers and sisters erecting a very big altar in a place where we think they should, and what do we say? Get them. No, we don't do that. When we're engaging in this process, we make sure we have all the facts first and we hear it from their mouth first, like Israel did here. Now listen, jumping to conclusions is one thing, as we jump back to Matthew 18. This is one thing, and we needed to see the vivid picture, even in God's word, people jump to conclusions. It's, it's one thing to jump to conclusions, and it's dangerous, but failing to approach one, right? So let's say we do that but we still fail to approach. We know what's going on. It can cause other problems. In fact, let's say we know that this is what's going on. Let's say we recognize it is unrepentant sin. If we fail to approach, it can allow further sin. Even more, it can allow bitterness. Hebrews 12 talks about that as well. So we are commanded to approach our offender. Talk to them about their offense. Secondly, And you would hear that and say, okay, yes, but note the manner. How do we approach our offender? Alone. Oh, our flesh hates this, doesn't it? Alone. This should be obvious, not on social media, not in public, not to others. That is gossip. 
If you're sinned against, beloved, approach your brother or sister directly and alone. Alone. In one of our recent meetings as elders, we talked about this in our prayer for Westmount, is that we are a step one culture here. Step one culture. What do we mean by that? A local church where we approach each other purely, rightly, as loving fellow disciples. Such culture would also answer the question, which offense needs church discipline? If we're a step one culture at Westmount, you would say, well, which offense comes under Matthew 18? And if we're a step one culture, we would say all of them. All of them. We should be discerning, discipling, approaching each other as often as there's an offense. Because if you don't talk it out, you what? Act it out. Beloved, we do that and listen more often than not. Most times even, I would submit your brother or sister will listen to you and they will repent. Says Jesus, and what? You have gained a brother. You've gained a sister. That said, of course, there are times when they do not listen. And note this, beloved. It's only a lack of repentance that escalates this process. Do you see that? This is the key. This is not they sinned. And they did repent, but you just want to keep going on about it. No, we're going to get to that in a moment. It's done. This is an unrepentant person. Someone who doesn't see it, won't relent, won't repent. Only then, if they don't repent, does it get escalated. And so verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. The second step here outlines more spiritual pressure is applied to your brother. Why? Is this cruelty? No, this is godly, divine, loving pressure, isn't it? They're in a bedroom that's burning in flames, and they need to be extracted. Simply, if he or she does not listen to you, you are to take one or two others. Now, let's be very careful here, because you say, okay, well, who would you take with you? First of all, you you don't take someone who's partial to either side. James 2, right? You don't take someone partial, someone with a preference to a side. You take, and we talked about this as elders too, I like this, a, a mutual mature friend. A mutual friend with no vested interest either way. A trusted Christian. This person does not necessarily need every little detail. And listen, if they're mature, they won't want it, right? They only need to know there's an offense between Yudia and Syntyche, between two sisters, two brothers. That's all they need to know. And they're there, look, I'll be there to help you make this right. So you're bringing them, thus as a witness, to you approaching your brother and sister. In other words, to say, look, I did it. The Mosaic Law speaks at length about the evidence of witnesses. Numbers 35, 30, and Deuteronomy 17 and 19. By the way, Jesus refers to this practice in John 8, 17, Paul in 2 Corinthians 13, 1, this is a biblical practice of having witnesses. And here the witness is not just a witness to the second step taking place, here it is, but also to how the offender responds to the call to repent. Remember, this is godly accountability. The additional persons and weight are designed to pressure and persuade the unrepentant heart. Now listen, the sinner should repent at this point, but again, sadly at times, they do not. If he or she doesn't, Jesus makes clear what's to happen next. Look at verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, the two or three, tell it to the church. This is step three. This is discipline that moves from private to public. But listen, not to humiliate. No, to help, because the sinner is moving further and further toward what? 
a hardened heart. This is not all the details spilled, but enough told for members to join the call to repent. And listen, believe me, caring, mature members do not want the details. They just want reconciliation, right? So the two or three seek the help of the elders of the church at this point. And note this, to this point, the elders are not involved, right? In step one and step two. This now, it's escalated to this point where it's brought to them. They need to know at this point because it's a telling to the church. So this makes sense. Yes, that command tells us that the rescue party has broadened and sin is persisting. And this public step, by the way, also signals a change in the way the church interacts with the sinner. This is crucial. This third step signals something now as more pressure is being mounted, as the Bible speaks to. There's a change because they're continuing in a lack of repentance. Now, this is where things get very confusing, isn't it? Because simply this is not done. Most often, churches, let alone step one, say step three. So what do we do? We just camp out in one of two extremes. On one hand, we think we just need to avoid completely. Oh, I heard something about them in church today. I just need to avoid them. On the other hand, we don't think at all, and we just carry on as if everything is just fine, right? Both are wrong because both extreme examples do what? Ignore the reality of the sin, don't they? Both examples ignore the reality of the sin. The avoider is actually nullifying the love by shunning them. The carry honor as normal does not help under the everything is fine motif. Beloved, sin always affects relationships. Sin always affects relationships. Let me read from our recent step three announcement. Listen, we said this. And let's make sure this is clear. Sin affects fellowship with God and one another. As such, the one sinning has no true fellowship with God or believers until what? The sin stops at repentance, right? So fellowship is impaired. So what does that look like, you ask? It means in our public relationships what it means in our private relationships. And listen, I I don't know the majority of your experiences in your relationships, but I know this. When someone offends you in a close relationship, does it affect your relationship with them? Every time. In fact, the closer you are to them, think husband and wife. If Carrie sins against me or I sin against Carrie, it would be something very strange for us to carry on as if everything is normal, wouldn't it? Now look, we also don't. She sleeps in this room and I sleep in that room. We never do that. But we recognize something needs to be dealt with. In the same way, church, this is the via media between the two extremes. It's a recognition that something is wrong. Something is wrong. This is normal behavior. We get it. And listen, if there is not a change in the relationship, can I just say this for all of us and a help generally? If there isn't a change when someone sins against you or you sin against someone, if the relationship doesn't change, that points to another problem in the relationship, right? And there could be more things afoot there than just this, but that's for another time. Now, even after privately approached with two or three confronted, or after told to the church and the fellowship different, the sinner may still persist and not repent. Here is where we see sinners do everything from sin more, they're adding more sin. See David with Uriah, right? 
Or they even go as far to say, well, I'm just no longer part of that church, and I'm just away from them, and I'm revoking membership and so on. We see them do all kinds of things like that. Yet none of those are legitimate. By the way, that wouldn't even hold up in a court of law, let alone the church of Christ. Not only, or sorry, no, only the response that repents is what is called for. Repentance, says Jesus. And finally, if that telling to the church does not persuade the sinner, Jesus says this, finally, in verse 17, If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Listen, to the Jew, to the Jew, the Gentile was not in the covenant community. Hence, no fellowship. And to the Jew, the tax collector was simply a sinner, living the way that they shouldn't against Yahweh's law. But more here, in both cases, these were not individuals the Jews associated or had fellowship with. That's the point. This is the point of these steps. There was no sharing tables or community or really much at all because why? Their position and conduct rendered them as being on the outside. It's because of the way that they have acted. Listen, this is straight from the mouth of Jesus. Look at it again. I want us to see it from Jesus. Verse 17. This is the reality of persistent sin. Beloved, this is pretty straightforward at this step. And let's call it what Jesus is calling it. They are considered an unbeliever, right? So like all unbelievers, it does not mean you do not talk to them or you do not see them. Can we perish that thought? That's not what this is saying. Oh, I don't see them. Oh, oh. But like all unbelievers, it does mean you recognize what you do not have with them, right? Like all unbelievers, it means your interactions are informed with urgency, And yet it's even more with most unbelievers you know, and I believe this is true for many of us, they're clear on their unbelief, aren't they? You have friends and family members like, yeah, I'm not into the God thing. This is not me. Very clear, right? Okay, can interact. I know what you profess. But this is not true with this unrepentant. Almost every time they're still professing Jesus, but not living for Jesus. In the case of someone in step four put out of the church, they may still profess Christ, and we need to be cautious that our interactions with them then don't foster such security, right? The most unloving thing we could do was foster and say, everything's going to be okay. Let's just let things cool down and everything will be okay. Our interactions must not affirm that they're going to be eternally okay. In fact, this text suggests our interactions would even be different here because they once professed and acted accordingly, but no longer, which puts them in a very different category to professing unbelievers that we know. So by that fact alone, we know the relationship is changing. As such, church discipleship that restores continues into this step. We see it in 1 Timothy 1, 18 to 20, the fact that after that step, they're handed over to Satan so that their soul would be saved. We see this over and over in Scripture. Look at 1 Corinthians 5 and so on. In terms of how you interact with such a person in this step of discipline, by the way, let's be plain and practical as we close. Your relationship is no longer close. It can't be. It can't be holy. It can't be intimate. Your relationship is now guarded, common, and gospel-oriented. You are civil indeed, but you're unattached. Why? Interactions are framed with the need and the reality and the desire that they need to repent. Their bedroom is burning, so to speak. Loving, firm, direct, and intentional calls are needed for those absolutely mesmerized and hardened by sin. Not getting back to normal, 
not carrying on as we are, and certainly not fellowship. I want you to listen to the Apostle Paul again. We go to the Word of God. Listen to what he says in 5.11, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. That cannot be clear. Christ certainly knew there would be pushback here, right? Especially when you hear that. You might say this, says who? Says who? Let's finish the paragraph, Matthew 18, 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. In the class downstairs, Jeremy took us to this in Matthew 16, and we saw in both cases, right, it's an issue of authority. This is an authority there on the confession of Christ, and then what is brokered here in the context of church discipline. These verses then, look at them again, 18 to 20, look at them. These verses are not about casting out demons or needing more people to ensure your prayers are heard and answered. These verses in context are about what? Church discipline and the church discipline process, the authority in it, by simply stating that what's bound and agreed on on earth is bound and agreed on and done in heaven. Now, what's interesting as we close this chapter is not a response from the disciples that questions if this is really effective. What you don't get is say, well, I don't know about this practice. It seems too harsh. I don't know Jesus. You don't get that. This is what you get in Peter's response. And bear with me, we just need a few more minutes to close this properly and finish this chapter. And this last point, which is really just the parable, discipleship's economy. And look at verse 21. Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Peter doesn't say, what if they do not repent? Do you see that? Later repentance is considered in view here. The brother sisters repented. We're going to deal with repentance next week. The burning question here for Peter and disciples in the wake of one that does repent is this. Do we just keep accepting them back when they repent? And the answer, Jesus says, is what? Well, get out your calculator. I got an equation for you. Let, let's just see. Okay, hang on a second. Seven times 70 disciples. Who's got an abacus? Let's figure this thing out. No. The point of Jesus' answer is that it's incalculable. In other words, you forgive them every time. Every time. Church, this is discipleship's economy, forgiveness and more forgiveness, and when you forgive, you forgive again. And then when you're done that cycle, you rinse, repeat, and you forgive again and again, and you keep forgiving. That's the economy of discipleship. You can't have relationships without it. You need forgiveness. There's no growth, there's no learning without it. And not only that, forgiveness in the end is the test of your own discipleship, by the way. As this chapter closes, Jesus points the process back around to the disciple squarely and looks at the disciple offended and says, what about you? Can you forgive? Can you do that again and again when your brother repents? If you cannot, Jesus says, then the offender is not the only one needing restoration. And again, we close with this parable, Jesus tells, and it speaks for itself. Therefore, verse 23, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. 
And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. In other words, paltry amount compared to the vast sum he owed. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me now, I'll pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, says Jesus, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. In Westmount, you must forgive from your heart. Now listen, you forgive the repentant sinner, right? You have a heart of forgiveness, right, as you're working through the process, and you actually, truly, from the heart, forgive when they come and they repent before you. Now, you recognize repentance is the key, is it not? And that's another misunderstood doctrine, which we'll cover next week. But when true godly repentance is there, you must forgive. As we close today, we heed the call to forgive as we've been forgiven. Because in the end, it is not the receivers of mercy that are saved. No, it is givers of mercy that experience true salvation. Mercy given only reveals that mercy was received. Mercy given only reveals that mercy was received. Beloved saints, may that economy of discipleship, I pray for each one of us here, be true of us. Seven times, 70 times, and on and on. May it be so. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that that would be true of us as your disciples. A heart of forgiveness. And Lord, we recognize these things are difficult as we work through the process that needs forgiveness, that needs repentance, that needs mercy. So God, help us as we look to execute your word in the right way. Help us with our defenses, Lord. Break them down and help us to embrace your word and to do what it says. For our good and the bride of Christ and, of course, for your glory, we pray. Amen.